You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Amit Garg, managing partner and co-founder at Tao Ventures. And today we'll talk about deep tech investing and specifically what is going on in AI field right now and what to expect from it in the near future. And also we'll talk about how founders in deep tech should test out their ideas really early on when they have little to no funding at all. So Amit, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Tao Ventures. Sure, Constantine. Thank you so much for having me here. It's an honor to be part of Fundraising Radio. Um, Tao Ventures is a seed fund in Palo Alto, in the heart of Silicon Valley. We are investing in applied AI, uh, artificial intelligence, as a horizontal in three verticals, digital health, enterprise, and automation. Uh, digital health is the biggest vertical for us. Uh, it includes companies like Iterative Scopes that uses computer vision to detect colon cancer, uh, companies like Toshin that um, use machine learning to build a drug discovery platform. Um, and digital health overall for us is a pretty broad field. Uh, we uh, see tremendous need and opportunity. Um, we are staying away from therapeutics and medical devices, but we are very friendly if there's some hardware and obviously if there's regulatory processes involved. Enterprise, which is our second thesis, is uh, um, almost as big as digital health for us. And uh, my partner uh, focuses especially on cybersecurity, tooling, uh, and includes companies like uh, Serbi, uh, which uh, is on our website. All of our companies are on our website. Serbi is helping protect uh, your personal information in social media. And then a much smaller vertical for us is automation, which is cars, drones, robots. And I'll give an example here. We have a company uh, called Blended, which is a robotic arm to make smoothies. Um, overall, uh, we see uh, a tremendous opportunity in AI, and that's the reason for creating this fund. Um, be a seed first, AI first fund. And in fact, we see AI at the same place where maybe mobile was 15 years ago or the internet was 25 years ago um, in, in terms of an explosion of companies that uh, are leveraging AI for their solutions, for their products. Uh, we see that in the near future, nobody's going to say they're building an AI company. It's going to be understood. AI is going mm -hmm. to be very much embedded into the company. Um, so yeah, let me take a pause here, Constantine, uh, and, and turn it back to you. Sounds good. Sounds good. So first question actually is going to be about the robot that's making smoothies. That's just That just caught my attention, and I would love to hear more about it. So, you know, when this company came to you, they presented you their idea. What were the major things that you looked at in that company before making the investment decision? Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, it was one of the funnest diligence processes I've ever done. Uh, first question That's was, exactly can, I, I asked. <laughs> can, I, can I try the smoothies? That was the first question, <laughs> uh, which I did. Um, and then I said, well, I think I need to do more diligence. Can I have a little bit more smoothie? Uh, <laughs> but um, no, so jokes aside, um, uh, this is a team um, that at the time we invested was about 15 people. Um, and the three co-founders had been working together for a long time. Uh, they were a very rare breed of entrepreneurs, people who knew both software and hardware really well. And they had built a company that they sold into Barnes & Noble that eventually became the Nook. 
Um, so this is a, a, a an experienced team, and that's obviously a big factor into investing in the seed stage. You want to see folks that um, bring something to the table, either in terms of experience, uh, in terms of vision, in terms of uh, just being very hard workers. Obviously, not every team is going to have that. We have taken multiple bets into first-time entrepreneurs, but we, what we want to see is that they have a deep passion and understanding of what they're doing. Um, and this was plenty obvious into Vipin Jane, that's the name of the CEO and his team. The second part of it uh, at the time of the investment was the actual product. So this is a big robot that is meant not for a home, but for uh, a commercial use. So think about it uh, in, in a university setting, in a cafeteria, or in a corporate setting, in a cafeteria, or maybe at airports, uh, or in a retail shop, you have this robot that is uh, making smoothies much more efficiently, much more personalized. Um, when um, when you order through your phone, you may have an allergy to certain kinds of nuts, or you may want an extra bit of mangoes, or you may want just exactly a smoothie that's um, uh, that's green and has these particular ingredients. If you go today to any smoothie maker, you can't get that level of personalization, not to mention that level of efficiency, because a robot can uh, program all those tasks and um, can get a lot more uh, economies of efficiencies, right? Like if they're making four smoothies, they can make all four of them in the same uh, batch and they can reuse the ingredients uh, so that they reduce the amount of time that would take to pick up each ingredient from a shelf, which is very hard for a human being to do. A human being is much more of a serial thinker. I'm going to make this, then I'm going to make this, then I'm going to make this. But for a robot, they can shuffle the tasks very quickly. Uh, so that was very exciting for us that here's a robot that has a mixture of hardware and software. And the beauty here is in, in, in the artificial intelligence of how you program the tasks, how you schedule the tasks, how you get them accomplished much more easily. And then the third thing here is the business model. We, we saw that um, by, by making labor more efficient, you can make uh, human beings more efficient. So, um, in 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 a in, in a slightly pre-pandemic world, at least uh, you might have had four people uh, making smoothies, and now you might have those same four people doing different jobs, which is much more about greeting the customer and and uh, obviously still handling payments. Uh, this robot is not doing that, but it up levels the tasks of human beings instead of doing the rote task of cutting vegetables, uh, chopping uh, mangoes and, and, and keeping everything uh, running smoothly. A robot can do all those manual tasks much more efficiently, much more cheaply getting, uh, allowing humans to do more higher value at a task along the lines of service. So those were the three big reasons why we invested. Nice. This is perfect description. And I love the first two parts of the due diligence when you were trying smoothies. That's, I think, <laughs> that does seem like the most important part of it. Uh, but now, now let's move on and talk a little bit more about the thing that you've mentioned briefly, which is the fact that uh, Tal Ventures is based in Silicon Valley and you've been there for like 20 years. What do you think will happen to that place after the pandemic is over? Do you Are you one of those people who believe that everyone will return to the uh, Silicon Valley or... You do not think that. Well, uh, Silicon Valley is one of many technology centers in the world. Um, it, it is the it's the most developed uh, in, in many metrics uh, ecosystem. Um, so roughly speaking about to use one metric, about a quarter of the venture capital 
in the US um, is in Silicon Valley. It's specifically maybe three or four parts of Silicon Valley. Uh, and that is a metric, right? It's not the only one, but then you also have another metric, which is um, the number of folks that are involved in economic activity around tech, whether it's companies like Google and Facebook and Salesforce, uh, all of which are headquartered here in Silicon Valley or uh, in startups. Uh, and I, I do think that Silicon Valley um, is a, there's many reasons for why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. Um, it's 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 perhaps a different question. Um, those reasons are not going away um, with or without pandemic. Um, and uh, we we I don't see very. I actually wrote an article about this just last week on my LinkedIn. Uh, I don't see the fact that other parts of the world are developing um, and and also becoming more mature startup ecosystems to be a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's a great thing. Um, it doesn't mean that Silicon Valley is getting left behind. It means that other parts are accelerating and also becoming developed. Uh, I do think that Silicon Valley will continue being very much the, the biggest and most developed ecosystem uh, for a long time, for, for any foreseeable future. But other ecosystems will will are and will continue developing, perhaps at a at a faster magnitude. Um, in the U.S., you have New York, you have Boston, you have Austin, you have L.A., where you are based yourself, Constantine. So um, yep. I think that's a, that's a great thing. Uh, we want a multipolar world. We don't want uh, a dependency on a single engine driving the world economy or the U.S. economy or any kind of economy for that matter, um, the tech economy. So uh, your question, I'm going to modify a little bit. Um, people have never all been in Silicon Valley. So it's not like people will return to Silicon Valley. We, 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 we have some exodus from Silicon Valley right now, but we also have some exodus from New York and from Boston and from any major city in the world um, because people want to live in more socially distanced ways and they want to live in, in suburbs and rural areas. And you can do that in a remote economy. Uh, do we go back to the, the same economy we were pre-pandemic? No, we don't. Um, but will we stay in this completely virtual economy? Absolutely not either. There are advantages and reasons for clustering and there are advantages and reasons for uh, people to still want to be in offices. So a, a lot of folks have written about the 3-2 model and uh, I'm a believer that that will be a reality for a lot of tech, uh, not for all industries, but the 3-2 model basically means three days from home, two days, I'm oh, sorry, three days from work, two days from home. I think that's a very feasible reality for a lot of us. Right. And that's just a perfect answer. Absolutely love it. And I'll make sure to include the link to your article in the description of this episode. So if anyone's curious to, to read more on that, definitely check out the description of the episode. And let's move on to the next question. It's going to be about deep tech again. So uh, on our pre-interview call, you mentioned that sometimes you invest in something very complicated like uh, cancer research and stuff like that, which is very tough. So uh, on those on those investments, what are the major things that you look at? So when you cannot, you know, see the product already done, so you cannot try the smoothie that that is done by that company, uh, but it's it has a very long-term horizon. So what are the major things that you look at in those companies? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a um, a, a a very meaningful question, uh, given that deep tech is, in, in my view. Um, where uh, a lot of great innovation happens. And, and that's what 
you know, gives us the leaps of progress in society. So that's one of the reasons we are deep tech investors. The other one is because we have done it in our careers. Um, I, I'm a computer scientist and a biologist by training. That's what I did in my undergrad. And I did my master's in health AI. Um, and I've been an operator and entrepreneur primarily before becoming an investor. So my partner is a similar background. He was uh, a computer scientist who did a lot of uh, work around uh, healthcare also. Um, and and we could we can still both code. Um, and he worked at Microsoft. I work at Google. So we're bringing our own backgrounds to work here. And uh, that is very much uh, part of the thesis is that we may not know all the answers, but we know what questions to ask. Um, and if we don't know how to validate those answers, we have a very strong set of folks around us. Uh, we have a, a strong set of advisors that can help us validate. We have our own investors. We have our own entrepreneurs. So when I'm looking for a, in a company is whatever they're doing, they, they, there is some kind of differentiation with AI. That's part of our thesis. Uh, maybe they have a proprietary data set. Maybe they're simulating data through uh, synthetic data. Maybe they are um, uh, access here to, to um, analyzing the data 10 times faster, right? Like I need to see something here that's a technological edge. And what I'm trying to validate here is that this is not a research project, that this is a commercially viable mm -hmm. company. Um, so to your point, if it's a cancer company, um, and I'll give a very specific example, computer vision for colon cancer, that company that I mentioned called Iterative Scopes. Um, when we invested, we saw that they had collected 20,000 videos from 40 hospitals, and they already trained their algorithms on it so that when they were detecting polyps, they could find um, almost at a 99% accuracy whether somebody had a polyp that could be uh, dangerous, that could become into cancer. Uh, that is, by the way, much better than any doctor out there. Uh, even the best doctors are able to get to 75% detection. So we saw a proof point here. Uh, it wasn't approved by the FDA at that point in time. Uh, they did not have paying customers at that point in time, but we saw that they had been able to collect the data. They had been able to train an algorithm. They had a working prototype. And I think that's the ultimate definition of a seed. It's not how much money you raise, but it's what you use your money for. Uh, the framework overall that I have is that a pre-seed is a PowerPoint, a seed is a prototype, a mature seed or a seed extension or a pre-A or whatever term you want to use for it is a pilot. You want to see that there are customers that are starting to use it. And then a series A is a product market fit. So I play specially between the seed and the mature seed. And I want to see prototypes and ideally pilots um, with a line of sight towards the series A, which is the product market fit. Nice. I love the description of differences between those uh, series, uh, those rounds. Sounds very accurate, actually. So before we move on and talk a little bit more about AI, I wanted to ask one more question about why you like the regulatory process. So in the beginning, you mentioned that you like to invest in um, healthcare, especially if there is hard tech or some sort of regulatory process. Why is that? I, I believe that I don't think I've ever met investors who are like, oh, yes, regulatory processes, complicated stuff. I love that. I'm going to I'm going to go in there. So what? why do you like it? Oh, absolutely. Um, we are uh, we we pride ourselves actually on tackling hard things and um Look, in healthcare, there's maybe a 10% universe of companies that can go direct to consumers. Um, 
and by the way, I'm speaking more about the U.S. rather than about Europe uh, or other parts of the world. But in the U.S., we have uh, large insurance systems and people um, by and large uh, are, are honestly a bit overwhelmed uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, dealing with healthcare. Um, we, we, we feel as a, as a society that we're already paying into healthcare that uh, our insurance should take care of it rather than us paying out of pocket. So yeah, companies like Peloton for me are digital health. Uh, that is a very consumer-driven digital health company. That's an exception to the to the rule. Most companies in healthcare in the U.S. are B two B two C, so they will sell into payers and providers, meaning into doctors and into insurances. And increasingly, we are seeing them pay, sell into pharma. Um, the framework, incidentally, is the four P's of, of healthcare. So payers, providers, patients, pharma. Some people call it a fifth P, which is policymakers. Um, but uh, we want them to be selling into, into payers and providers. And when you're going to be selling into payers and providers, they have requirements. They want to see that there's been clinical trials. They want to see that this is real, this is legitimate, and there will be an FDA approval process in many cases. Now, the FDA is not a... a, a uh, a monolith, right? It's there are easy regulatory processes and there's complicated regulatory processes. Uh, for those of uh, uh, folks listening in, uh, at, at a very high level, there's class one, class two, class three. Class one is is much easier, and there's fast track for those regulatory processes. There's one specific called five ten Ks. So we look for the low hanging fruit. Um, I'm not uh, very unlikely to invest in a class three device, um, which is very invasive, but class two, I'm open to it and class one for sure. In um, 510Ks, absolutely. Uh, I want to see that you you put yourself through uh, some rigor, that you did get the approval, that uh, you um, have something here that's real, and the scientific proof and the scientific credibility will mean that you will go further with the medical community and give, gives me as a patient also much more conviction about using this technology. So, you know, I say bring it on. Um, companies should embrace it. If you're going to do something in healthcare, it's, it's good news for all of us that there have been proof points around around it, validating it. We're, we're dealing at the end of the day with people's lives, right? You you can't get it wrong. Mm -hmm. True, and I love that. I really like that. You know, some something new, something that I have not seen in the past. So that's awesome. Nice approach by Tau Ventures here. So let's move on and talk more about AI. And let's start this discussion by talking about something fun and interesting, which is what do you think is the best application of AI that you have seen so far? Oh, boy, that's like asking me who's your favorite child, right? <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's so many applications of AI uh, that, that get me really excited. Um, I, I, I would be remiss in picking one from my current portfolio because I, I, I care equally about all the companies we have invested in. So I'm, I'm going to pick one from the past, from a previous life. Um, so I, I invested in a company called Newtonomy uh, when I was uh, at my previous VC fund, Samsung Next Ventures. Uh, I did the seed there, and then they did the Series A, and then the company got sold for $450 million, uh, in two years from when I invested to the sale. And it was just a, an incredible, incredible journey. So the, the thing uh, that got me really excited about the company is that they were building um, models for cars to be able to take decisions by themselves. Uh, it's a problem that many other companies have tackled, Tesla, Google, and so on. Um, 
And one of the challenges is that a car needs to understand what's going on around the world, and you need to give it a lot of data for it to make sense. Now, think about you and I. When you and I are driving a car, let's say in a, in a place we don't know, it's not like we have mapped every single inch uh, of this new location, right? Like if you're, um, Constantine, let's say driving in Seattle, I don't know how familiar you are with Seattle, but it might be a more... A lesser known place to you than 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 LA, um, and uh, it's not like you know every single thing about Seattle, but you have certain rules in your head, you have certain experiences in your head, and you are have certain expectations of how the traffic will behave in Seattle, and that's how you're able to navigate around Seattle, right? That's what these guys did for autonomy in the car. They cre created models that allowed the cars to make decisions requiring ten times less data. And that's all about AI. It's about taking uh, a lot of work that had been done in, in industrial robotics that had done in aeronautics um, and, and built on top of it to help the car make decisions requiring 10 times less data than other solutions around it. Now, that 10 times less data is an incredibly powerful differentiation because it means that you can go to market much easier and you can actually um, get these cars working much more effectively with much less data, right? Um, so that's at the heart of the investment that I made. I thought it was super cool that AI is ultimately going to drive, no pun intended, um, that, that change. Um, and um, a self-driving car, I'm a big believer in it because uh, it fundamentally changes society, right? To think about where you and I spend a lot of time in our lives, we spend at home, we spend at office, and we spend going places. And uh, the car or the bus or the or the vehicle, right, uh, is essentially essentially what allows us to move around in society. And it, it is if we fundamentally change that where we live, where we work, how we play, where businesses are located, where offices are located, where uh, real estate prices are like that, that is a, a change in the same magnitude as what the pandemic has done right now. So I, I continue being a big believer in autonomy and its latest incarnation. Uh, it's now part of other companies uh, of, of what self-driving cars can do. Nice. First of all, great pun you've done there, even though it's unintended. I still loved it. And <laughs> it was, I swear to God, I came up with it while talking. Nice, 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 nice. And secondly, yes, it does sound really interesting. And yes, best of luck to an autonomy. Uh, next question is going to be about how other people see AI versus how AI really is. So, you know, I, I'm barely familiar with AI field. I seen a bunch of companies in that space i've seen a few pitches but never really worked in that space so for people like me what do you feel is the major misconception about the ai field um there's a many misconceptions uh one being that um uh, ai will um there, uh, let me highlight two if i may one is that ai will solve all of our problems uh, it won't um we're not going to have uh, the Terminator coming back from the future. We will not have Skynet coming up. We will not have, um, you know, uh, the Matrix. Uh, all of this is science fiction. Um, the day where AI becomes truly, truly a general purpose intelligence is really, really, really far away. AI is really, really good at very narrow specialized domains where we feed it lots of data and it makes sense out of it. Uh, there's differences between supervised learning and unsupervised learning at a high level, which we can talk about later, but at a very, very high level, um, AI is, is good as long as there's human beings that are 
powering it. Um, it is a very powerful tool. It's a very powerful Swiss knife. Um, and what AI can do much better than humans is computations. It can calculate things. It can uncover mistakes. It can show patterns that human beings wouldn't be perhaps ever able to figure out, but it is not a creative system like the human brain. So that's one big misconception that the general public has. I, I don't think that practitioners of AI have that conception, but uh, what practitioners of AI uh, fall into perhaps is, is the second trap, uh, which is that um, a pessimism around AI. Uh, AI has been around in its modern sense for about 50 years. Um, the word AI at least was coined in, in the 1940s. And we have been through the promise and the pitfalls of AI multiple times. In fact, there's a term in the industry called the AI winter, where we say, okay, AI is ready, ready, ready. Oh, not really. Okay, AI is ready, ready, ready. Oh, not really. Right? So like we have been through these cycles where people go like, okay, AI will solve everything. And it doesn't. And then we get disappointed about it. And I think... I, I think we've gone through it at least twice now, but this time it's fundamentally different. And the reason it's fundamentally different is because we have a lot more data and we have a lot more computational power. Like the amount of data that's produced every year now is more than all the years previous to it combined. Like we are talking exabytes of data being produced by society at this point. It's, it's um, we, we have hit the inflection point. Um, and that means that we have a lot more now to feed into these systems to help train them. And then the second thing is, okay, just data by itself doesn't mean that we can ingest it and train these systems. We also have increased our computational power at an exponential rate. Like we have Moore's law and we have exceeded Moore's law at this point in some ways. Um, so the fact that there's more computational power in this little device that I hold in my hands, uh, my cell phone, than the computer that got us to the moon 50 years ago. Like literally, how crazy is that, right? Um, every single human being that has a cell phone is walking around with something more powerful than, than a journey to the moon. Um, and that is unprecedented. In, in, in human history, we have never had access to so much power and so much fuel to that power. So that means that AI is now possible in a way that was never possible before. And we are talking in order magnitude, more than an order magnitude uh, of a leap that we have taken literally in the last two or three years. It is part of the, the, the reason we have created Tau Ventures. It's that we see that we have hit that inflection point and there's a combinatorial explosion of possibilities, of solutions, of products now that that, that will be created. Nice. That does sound very interesting and very inspiring. Actually, I'm kind of caught up with it. I now want to read a few articles on that. So after the episode, I will sure as hell do that. Uh, but before we wrap it up, two more questions. One is going to be about early stage developments for deep tech solutions. So a lot of it requires a ton of research and development, which requires a lot of money. So how have you seen founders overcome this problem of, you know, I have a cool idea, but it requires a lot of development, which requires a lot of money and money requires some kind of development already done. So how have you seen founders overcome this chicken and egg problem early on in deep tech? Yeah, no, that's uh, oh, you ask great questions, uh, Constantine. Uh, so we invest in three verticals, as I mentioned, and healthcare we talked about earlier. Um, it's really hard to have a fully baked product early on. Um, you can show proof points, right? You can show 
a prototype that's working, an algorithm that's working, a pilot, perhaps a pipeline. Um, enterprise is at a different place. Enterprise, typically, typically, you have uh, products that are already working even at the seed stage. Um, you may not have product market fit, meaning you don't have deployments in many places, but you might have some initial deployments. So it tends to be a little further along. And then automations all over the place, like there are companies like the self-driving car company I described from my previous life, where you know, you're not gonna have a self-driving car available commercially. It's not really available commercially yet, but uh, you might have robots to make smoothies that might be operating, right? Um, so it's a little bit all over the place. In general, for us at the seed stage, mature seed stage, what we look for is a pipeline. Once again, going uh -huh. back for the commercial uptake, I don't need to see necessarily that you have paying customers, but I want to see line of sight. I want to see that you're having those conversations, that you uh, are, are being able to open the doors and walk through them. If it's a nine to 18 month sales cycle, then you, know, you should have gotten started on it. And how you're going about it matters to me perhaps as much as what you have accomplished. Um, and this is a good lesson for me also as when I was an entrepreneur, right? Like uh, we were uh, very mindful that um, you can build the greatest technology on the face of the planet, but if you don't sell it, uh, if you don't get to the right people, then it's it's a beautiful piece of technology sitting on a shelf, right? So we, we look for very much business-oriented deep technologists. To me, it's more interesting uh, to find somebody who is uh, applying the technology and, and and commercializing it than the other way around, like somebody who understands the technology very well but can't commercialize it. And um, what, what we really appreciate is partnerships. Like a lot of the teams we have invested in, there's a technology-minded, technology typically CTO, with a business-minded CEO that are working together. Uh, it's not always those exact same roles, but oftentimes we see that it's a partnership of two or three founders doing that. Um, in rare cases, it is one founder who is able to do both. Um, but that, that's, that's the yin and the yang that we look for and that any deep tech company should really be doing in order to get to scale. Right, right, very accurate. And I love that description. If you do have nine to 18 months sales cycles, yes, it's time to get started with those because I mean, it's like more than a year. Uh, so on this pretty positive note, we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Amit, what is the one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Um, well, um, first of all, um, ve be very successful in whatever you're doing, whether it's a startup or you're aspiring to build a startup. Um, but uh, if you are building something here that is relevant to us at Tau Ventures, uh, send us a note, send us the deck. Um, uh, we are easily findable on LinkedIn uh, and warm intros are always helpful. That's true for any venture capital fund. Uh, VCs get... Uh, um, <laughs> basically flooded uh, with emails and, yeah. and, and notes. Um, I get uh, about 2000 companies I'm looking at any given year. And unfortunately we can't pay attention, equal attention to all of them. Uh, but we do look through everything that somebody sends us. And um, 
in the cases where we do see a fit, we do follow up. It ends up being about 10% of the cases. Uh, and the reason I was bringing up the warm intro is because if we see something coming from somebody that we've already worked with, that we have a lot of credibility uh, with, um, then it helps filter a little bit better, right? It increases the odds of a, a company, an entrepreneur falling into that 10% so that we, we, we go deeper into. Um, we do our homework very well in whatever we end up investing, but uh, as many other VC funds, we have a large funnel, right? It's it's uh, look at a lot and and be very go very deep with a few. Uh, and for those companies that we end up investing in, we we really truly go off the bat. Um, we we work as as much as we can to help them succeed, and and that's what an, a good early stage investor should do: is be a true partner. Nice. And that's very accurate, very optimistic as well. On this optimistic note, we're wrapping it up. My call to action is going to be, first of all, listen to Amit's call to action and be successful. And also make sure you check out the description of this episode. I'll leave Amit's article in the description of this episode. So if you're curious to hear what Amit thinks is going to happen to Silicon Valley after the pandemic, definitely check it out. And also I'll make sure to leave uh, links to Tau Ventures and also to Amit's LinkedIn in the description of this episode. So if you're in deep tech, highly, highly recommend you checking out the description of this episode and going through those links. And as usually, have a good day.